electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. everybody, I am Brian, and for Kelly once again, here's what's ahead on the exchange. Stocks and down in the U.S. because of COVID in China protests. Some of the country's tight restrictions, it is affecting everything from oil to the markets to even Apple. Apple's workers, by the way, in China, they're angry, rightfully so. We're going to log into all the different angles, geopolitical story that is really starting to rock the world. Plus, Congress, they're back for a potentially action-packed session. We'll look at what could get done and all the key issues facing Washington from crypto to Ukraine and, of course, a looming rail strike and immigration. How the system to let in skilled workers needs a, is really failing. Today, we're going to start a week-long special series devoted to just that. There is a whole lot going on on this busy Monday. We're going to get to it all over the next 59 or so minutes, but we begin with the numbers. Dominic Chu, take it away, my man. The numbers are decidedly negative today. I mean, not panic negative, Brian, but to your point here about the overall narrative about China, the economy, globally so, we are seeing a bit more risk aversion in trading today. The Dow Industrials, by the way, we are now near session lows at this point, down 358 points, about 1% losses there. Similar percentage loss for the S&P 500, now decently below that 4,000 mark, 39.81 the last trade there. Now, down 45 points. This is roughly the session low so far today. We were down 14 at the highs. So it's, again, been a down day now, tilting towards the lows of the session. The Nasdaq Composite, again, similar percentage move, down 118 points, 11,107 the last trade there. The global economic concern emanating out of the world's second largest economy, which is China, is having an outsized effect on oil prices. Now, at one point earlier today, U.S. benchmark prices hit $73.60, 73 handle, we are now bouncing up one and a half percent to 77 and change. So a big move higher off the lows. And the reason why some traders got perhaps a little bit more bullish was because at that $73.60 for U.S. benchmark crude prices, you were talking at one point the lowest level going all the way back to just around Christmas time of last year. So greater than one year lows on crude oil prices now getting a bit of a bounce off those lows. Another place to keep a close eye on is what's happening overall with the cryptocurrency markets here, specifically with regard to prices for Bitcoin and Ether in the wake of another high-profile bankruptcy filing, this time uh, from BlockFi. That's having a ripple effect on other parts of the market as well. Oddly enough, Bitcoin and Ether prices are holding up, generally speaking, but Coinbase shares are down three and a quarter percent right now, generally still feeling the ripple effects of the FTX bankruptcy. We'll keep an eye on those. And then we mentioned China and the concerns they're taking down our stocks. They're not necessarily taking down Chinese equities. Look at these ones. Pinduoduo up 14%. The Chinese e-commerce company, better than expected earnings and revenues. That's helping to create NetEase and Baidu and JD.com updrafts here, up about 1% to 2%. Alibaba up 1% as well. There is at least a view, a developing story, a tug of war, Brian, if you will, about whether or not the unrest in China could present a potential buying opportunity with some of these stocks that have been beaten up very markedly so over the last year. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, there's so many different angles to this China story as well. Tom Chu, thank you very much. So let's get right there and start at that story that is really moving the markets and kind of shaking the world, and that is China. 
Highly unusual protests breaking out in the country over weekend as demonstrators vented their frustrations with the government's handling of COVID-19 and its so-called COVID-0 policy. Now, despite that insanely harsh policy, which often includes locking people inside their own homes, COVID cases are soaring anyway across many Chinese cities. Nearly three years of strict controls has placed major stress on China's economy, no doubt its citizens' mental health, and ramifications are being felt all over the world. Even Apple, from a business perspective, the world's biggest company is being impacted. Protesters revolting at a factory for Apple supplier Foxconn. With China's path to fully, quote, reopening, getting blurrier by the day, not more clear. How will China proceed and where does it go from here? Let's ask Derek Scissors. He is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and CNBC contributor to Wardrick McNeil, a senior policy analyst at Longview Global. Uh, Dwardrick, I'm going to begin with you. Let's first off, the real issue here is humanity. I, I can't begin to comprehend what millions of people in China have gone through being forcibly locked in their homes for nearly three years, unable to see loved ones who are dying in the hospital of other diseases, just like around the world. So that aside, the humanitarian angle aside, do you think that President Xi and his party are at any risk from these protests or will they be? Just put down like China has done with so many others in the past. Brian, it's a very good question. I agree with you. This has been a tough way to try and make a living and try and survive in China. I think what we're seeing is citizens at their breaking point. Uh, This will cause some anger, some embarrassment, perhaps, uh, for Xi Jinping. But I don't believe his authority is at risk, uh, Brian. He has vanquished all of the people who could take advantage of some of uh, this uh, dissent in the streets. Uh, There's no competition uh, in the higher ranks of the party and no one, therefore, to act on all of the anger that we're seeing in the streets. I think we are going to see uh, attempts to quietly suppress this. As I've said earlier, China has a number of tools at its disposal. That's not just a physical uh, manifestation of cracking down. Uh, They have all sorts of high-tech monitoring, uh, biometrics, uh, geolocation software. So we're going to see this slowly uh, cool down. won't threaten Xi's authority, uh, unfortunately, for some people. Yeah, and it's just unbelievable to think about how, how they're living when they're, when they're watching, you know, the World Cup and 70,000 people are in a stadium, or even their own president, by the way, meeting at the, you know, recent whatever G20 with a mask off speaking to other world leaders. They see that. All right, so, Derek, if that's the case, two ways you can see this going. Do you think that the Chinese government might bend a little bit in the face of these protests or go the other way? And we're going to show you. You want to protest? We're going to make it worse. You could see them doing that, Derek. You know, China often responds to protests by paying off the protesters, Um, you know, just hand out a little money to angry workers. Um, That doesn't work here, obviously, because what the protesters want is an opening up, which is a much bigger decision than than borrowing some money and giving it to people. Um, I don't I I agree that Xi Jinping's authority is not in danger, but his decision making is in question. This all stems from his mistakes in 2020, thinking COVID would blow over and China handled it perfectly and and bragging about it. And now citizens see that the world has moved on and China hasn't. So I don't I don't think they can, you know, their, their normal strategy doesn't work here. And we're in a, 
a period of a lot of volatility because this is a, a fundamentally political decision. It should be a health decision, but it's not because it involves Xi Jinping's prestige. Derek, back to you. Does the U.S. take a role in this? Um, you know, I, I think the, the U.S. role, if, if we chose to take a role, it would be high risk, meaning to, to put pressure, to, to use propaganda. I mean, as you've mentioned, the Chinese people are seeing Xi Jinping overseas not wearing a mask. They're seeing the World Cup. Uh, we could highlight that. We could put more pressure on their regime. That is a high-risk strategy. I think the U.S. Uh, should probably step back, uh, talk about our, our wonderful vaccines that Xi Jinping refused to import, uh, but, but not pressure China such that we'd have a major role. Yeah, do you agree with that, DeWardrick? I mean, basically that our, our policy is just going to be, well, they're a sovereign country. They can do what they want, with what they want and we'll effectively just keep our mouth shut. Well, I, I agree with Derek. I think we have to be careful here not to allow Xi Jinping to blame ship. We're already starting to hear uh, the um, the foreign uh, actors or foreign agents influencing the protesters. Of course, that's not true, but we have to be careful how we respond uh, to this. We're also seeing that the central government is shifting blame to the local authorities and saying to the local authorities, you need to stick to the playbook that we introduced in the 20-point plan on November the 11th. Uh, they are strictly banning the use of chains, padlocks, and other physical borders uh, to stop uh, uh, protesters from uh, the people locked down from leaving. But I think it's too little too late, uh, Brian. I think people see this, as Derek pointed out, as political control, not pandemic control. So I think uh, the train has left the station on this. But it, it's, you know, DeWardrick, here's the, here's the hypocrisy, I think, of, of the United States in some ways. And I don't mean from a political party perspective. It's all of us, to be honest with you. We know that China has effectively forced labor camps, Uyghur Muslims in the far western part of the country, numerous, numerous reports of them sort of almost being forced to make things like cheap solar panels to sell around the world, perhaps clothing, whatever situation. And yet we want to grow out our renewables policy and we want to buy, you know, cheap China made goods while this is happening. We have the tariffs on the country, but. Should we take a stronger approach to saying, listen, we, we want we want renewables, we want solar panels, want them to be made here, or at least in countries with humane working conditions. How do we how do we approach and, and broach this? I think there is a hypocrisy here, to be honest with you. Well, I think you raise a fair point, Brian. I, I will point out, though, that the administration and Congress uh, work together to put in place the UFLPA, the Wager Force Labor Protection Act trying to really target uh, some of the uh, issues that you raise with respect to supply chain supporting this type of behavior. We could see more of this if these protests uh, turn uh, violent. But uh, I think it's a fair point. I think that the administration and certainly the 117th Congress and likely the 118th Congress uh, will continue to look to ways to tighten the screws here. Uh, but businesses are stuck with China as their only option in their supply chain. And I think this has been a mistake and one that is going to have to be corrected. I know it's easier said than done, but I think we're seeing now that it is time for businesses to look for a way uh, to increase or decrease uh, their dependence on China. Yeah. And the Inflation Reduction Act does put a lot of money, a couple hundred billion in tax credits, Derek, to try to build out renewables here in the United States. We're looking at new lithium mines, for example. They control almost the entire supply chain of rare earths needed to build things like electric cars and maybe even even iPhones. It's going to take years 
if not decades, for the U.S., assuming we even do it, Derek, to build up to a level where we can compete. So what do we do in the meantime? Do we just keep buying the stuff when we're watching a family burn to death in their own apartment building, by the way, over the weekend because they were locked inside and a three-year-old was killed? Yeah, I I don't think we do that. I think these conversations tie together. Xi Jinping is not going to change his spots, and that's that's why they're in the situation they are with regard to COVID. And if once you accept that, there's not going to be some wonderful improvement later uh, in Chinese human rights conditions, which means the U.S. needs to be acting now. We needed to be acting years ago, as was just said, but we need to act now. And, And the way to do that is to recognize that you can't, you can't compete with the Chinese on subsidies. They will oversubsidize you. You have to decide we don't want certain products from China and we need to build up our capabilities and the capabilities of our partners because hoping it will all yeah. get better in five years isn't going to work. And COVID is a very clear example of that. Well, it's well said. And listen, the irony of the subsidies is that now we've got our own subsidies, which is now ticking off Europe. Europe is now mad that we're subsidizing our own industries to combat China, but that it's going to hurt them. But we'll leave that for a different segment, maybe a different show. Derek and DeWardwick, really appreciate your views. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks. Thank right. you, Brian. On deck, back to the markets. And your next guest says what's old is now new again. We'll explain ahead. Plus, Congress, they're back to work after the holiday resource recess. But what exactly is going to get done before the big turnover in the House? A look at the impact on policy, your money, and, of course, crypto. The Exchange, back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. This year has been a pretty bad year for most of tech. You know that. But your next guest says that does not mean you need to steer clear of the entire sector. But to find some nice new returns, you may want to go decidedly old school. Consider this. Old Big Blue, IBM, it's up 10% this year. Texas Instruments, it's down 7%. And while Cisco is down 22%, keep in mind, That is still far better than some of the steep losses that we have seen from the the bigger tech names like the Amazons or the Facebooks of the world. I guess losing less is the new making money. So let's talk about going old school. For more, we're joined now by David Bonson. He is the founder and chief investment officer of the Bonson Group. What's old is new again. I mean, IBM 
one of the best performing tech stocks in all the land. Are you surprised or did you call this? No, I'm not surprised. We've owned it for quite a while, and it's actually up 27% over the last 12 months. On the calendar year, it's up 10%. It had a great ending last year as well. But keep in mind, it's also yielding about 5% in dividend as well. So IBM's been a big winner. And then even with Cisco, it's uh, uh, about a 3.2% dividend yield, double the market's dividend. And even though it's down on the year, it's down much less. And it's actually up um, about 8 9% in the last few weeks here. Yeah, what's good about what's IBM doing right? Or is it maybe just kind of like a safety stock where people are temporarily parking money to find something else? Yeah, no, it's a great question, Brian. But the answer is but with Cisco, with IBM and Intel, all three of the same story. There's an old line business that kicks off a ton of free cash flow. They have a great balance sheet, low debt, a lot of cash. They generate a lot of money, but it isn't high growth. Then they have a growth business that is sort of a free call option. In IBM's case, it was their Red Hat acquisition. So they are a leading player in the cloud. So they have a cloud business on top of their old line businesses, and we think that's the formula formula you want versus the big fang stocks that really were dependent on the multiple expanding forever, a P.E. ratio that can go through the the moon, and it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Now, Texas Instruments, again, down 7%, but, but, you know, in retrospect, it doesn't look too bad, and TI kind of puts their chips in a lot of the stuff that we don't don't think about very much. It's not necessarily new or or sexy, but maybe that's the point, David. Yeah, and, and, and I would point out with Intel that their whole reason for being down this year a lot is because of what they're doing for the future. We happen to like it, but we knew it was going to be very capital intensive, and the market doesn't like that right now. But um, the companies like Texas Instruments and so forth, Intel is going to become a manufacturer of these uh, semiconductors. And so they're going from chip design to chip manufacturing. Arizona, Ohio plants are being built, as you guys talk a lot about on the network. This is going to be a great story, but it's going to take some time. Yeah. And what are you expecting overall? It's, I guess it's that time of the year, David, where we start asking people what they think about next year. You don't have to make a specific forecast. This year stunk. What do you think is going to happen in 2023? Well, first of all, you're forcing me to say that this year didn't stink for us because we're up on the year with dividend growth. And that's what my answer is going to be about next year. That's what we do is dividend growth. It's, it's not meant to be in season at all times. I don't care that this year happened to be a shining great year for dividend growth. We like it all the time. But right now, where people need free cash flow, they need growing income to counteract inflation. You're going to start seeing yields go down next year in the bond market. And in my opinion, dividend growth is where you want to be. You're going to get better balance sheets, less volatility, and more predictable cash flows. The areas that are going to hurt are what hurt this year, which is anything relying on multiple expansion. Even when the market stops going down, which maybe that's happened already, Brian, but P.E. ratios are not going back to 25 times. It's just not going to happen next year. So we, that's why we like dividend growth next year as well as this year. Well, forcing yourself to say you're up this year, that's not a bad thing. You see what I did there? It's kind of nice. And if, Congrats, by the way, <laughs> to you, your sir. clients because that's, that's, this year it has not been easy. David Bonson yeah. of the Bonson Group, thank you. Have a great day. Thank you, Brian. All right.
And for more investment ideas, do not miss the kickoff event of CNBC Pro Week. That is today at 2 p.m. Eastern time on your second screen. ARK Invest CEO Kathy Wood will join the great Dom Chu with her thoughts on the markets and more. That is today, 2 p.m. Go to CNBC.com slash ProTalks to watch. You got CNBC TV on one screen, ProTalks on the other. By the way, Wednesday's ProTalk is with Leon Cooperman and a guy named Brian Sullivan. Sign up. Tune in for that. All right, coming up, oil a little bit higher right now, but earlier hitting nearly its lowest level in a year. We'll look at the key catalyst for crude in the coming week that could send the commodity on a roller coaster ride. You won't believe what's ahead. But first, Steve Leishman is here with a deep dive into the economics of the broken immigration system here in America and how it's costing the country billions of dollars. Stick around. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Hope you're having a great Monday. All right, the markets, they're not having such a great Monday. We are at session lows or right off session lows. Dow's down 350, about 1%. NASDAQ and S&P all down about the same. All right, inside the markets, here are some of the movers at this hour. Shopify shares, they're actually higher. They're bucking the trend. The company's saying its merchants saw record sales, over $3 billion on Black Friday. This morning, Jim Cramer called it the anti-Amazon. He says he likes Shopify as people start to realize that independent retailers are having a very good holiday season. Activision shares, they're also higher after a number of upgrades on the street today, including Wells Fargo, which says the market is discounting both potential outcomes for the video game maker. Remember, the stock fell 4% on Friday after a report that the FTC may file a lawsuit against its $69 billion deal with Microsoft. Shares are down big for the proposed closing price of 95 bucks a share. Keep that in mind. And Macau casinos are mostly higher after regulators renewed the casino licenses for Melco, Wynn, Las Vegas Sands, and MGM Resorts. So we'll, we'll see if anybody's even actually allowed to go to the casinos in China. All right. Now to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Brian, thank you very much. Election officials in Arizona's Maricopa County were accusing prominent Republicans in the state of raising doubts about secured ballot boxes that were used at some polling places when vote tabulation machines malfunctioned. They say the backup method has been used for decades and in places without tabulating machines. All voters put their ballots in those boxes. For the first time since 1984, the world's largest active volcano has erupted. Officials say Mauna Loa's lava flows are contained within the summit area right now and do not threaten nearby communities. And the White House unveiling its holiday decorations today. Jill Biden chose the theme, We the People, to remind the country that, quote, we are stronger in community than we are apart. Brian, back to you, sir. All right, Tyler Matheson, thank you very much. All right, still ahead, Congress, it is back to work, and Democratic lawmakers are rushing to pass bills before the balance of power shifts in January. We'll look at the issues on the agenda, what it means for the markets and your money. Next.
All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Congress is officially back in session. It is a lame one, apparently. A lame duck, of course, that is. But don't let that name deceive you. It could be a very busy session with Democrats looking to push through their agenda before losing control of the House. The top priority, a funding bill to keep the government running past December 16th. Among other items on the punch list, maybe codifying national abortion rights, same-sex and interracial marriage, as well as passing the Electoral Count Act. But there's also plenty of headwinds in these final weeks. Unrest in China, potential rail strike, and most recently, fallout from the FTX bankruptcy. And your next guest has a note asking if next year will finally be the year of the so-called crypto Congress. Bring in Ed Mills, managing director and Washington policy analyst at Raymond James. Must read notes. Ed, good to have you back on. What will be Congress's job one? Yeah, job one is keep the lights on, uh, fund the government. It is an expiration date of uh, December 16th. They'll probably punt it one week going up to the 23rd. Members of Congress always want to get home for Christmas. So uh, getting that done, uh, getting the Defense Act uh, reauthorized. But this is for Democrats. There's a couple of must-do items, the Respect for Marriage Act, the Electoral College uh, Count Act, uh, that they want to get done before they give up the majority in the House um, in the beginning of January. So it's that push and pull between things that they absolutely have to get done, uh, which is keeping the lights on, versus what they absolutely want to get done. For Republicans, it's trying to figure out who the next speaker is. So the deal-making ability, especially in the House, is pretty low. Uh, but it's not going to be such a lame duck here, after all. You think we'll get another round of funding for Ukraine? I do. So in the appropriations bills, the top things that I'm looking for is funding for Hurricane Ian. That actually brings some Republicans on board in the uh, Florida area. Uh, funding for Ukraine, some health care fixes, which could include more COVID funding. Uh, a outside of the box thing might be the Safe Banking Act, which allow banks to handle cannabis-related businesses. So lots of things in that funding bill um, that absolutely will get done. Okay, let's talk about crypto. Um, I tweeted it out. There was a letter apparently last March. The Prospect, which is a, an organization, they, they put out the letter over the weekend, so credit to them on this, that I think it was eight people in Congress, four Republicans, four Democrats, basically wrote a letter to the SEC saying, back off FTX and back off crypto. Five of the eight of them, of course, reportedly took political donations from FTX or some of its employees. I mean, the whole thing just looks, it just doesn't look good at all, Ed. No. no. Um, and you could draw your own conclusions. Are we going to get any meaningful, real crypto regulation, or is the crypto industry just so in with the money in D.C. that nothing's going to get done? So, Brian, I think December is going to be full of crypto hearings. Um, when we have a crisis, uh, that gets Congress's attention. Um, you highlight that group of uh, House and Senate um, uh, members of Congress that were asking about that. That adds to some of the drama here. Uh, but the reality is, is that there is a strong desire to do something. They just don't know what that something is. There's jurisdictional battles between kind of, is it a commodity? Is it a security? That goes to who gets to write the bill in Congress. That's a real big issue. Things that tilt me in the maybe something gets done category is 
there are a significant need for consumer protections. Uh, and we also don't want to let China uh, run forward with this and, and set the rules, especially uh, in the payment space. We don't want to see Europe set the rules. So there's going to be a kind of America first desire here uh, to get this done. Uh, but there's still a lot of members of Congress that are happy to watch this kind of implode. And they're sitting back and they're saying, thankfully, we did not let this into the banking system, that this didn't become a systemic risk. And so that group is going to be pretty cautious to make sure any regulation or legislation that gets done doesn't further kind of legitimize digital assets uh, from a D.C. perspective. Yeah that could cause problems later on. And by the way, we, we reached out to every congressperson, I believe, who's taken money from FTX or its employees. Some have said they've given it to charity. Some haven't gotten back to us. Some have just apparently have gone dark. We're going to try to stay on that. If you took money, give it back or give it to charity. Giving it back would be better, so it goes to the rightful owners. All right. Uh, my wife asked me a question last night that I, I'm embarrassed to say I had no answer to. She said, uh, can Congress step in? Because she's a consumer product. She cares about supply chains. Can Congress step in or the president and fix this rail strike, basically prevent them from striking? I do not know the answer to that question. So I punted to you. Yeah. So the answer is yes, Brian. Um, Congress does have that authority. They've used it in the past. The last train out of the station, probably before Congress goes home for Christmas, is that defense authorization bill. And so it's easy to see that the last train out of the station is going to ensure that there's not going to be a real strike uh, here in December. A lot of things that the Biden administration is doing with the unions as well. But in that defense authorization, we're also looking at an energy permitting bill. There could potentially be a fight with OPEC. There could be a whole bunch of other tax provisions, especially mm -hmm. the expensing of research and development. So your wife is extremely smart to ask that question. And you should have just said yes and look it up later. <laughs> that's gotten me in trouble a lot of times on the television and so I, I just i just have smart people on like you to answer the question for me what's your phone number i'll call you next time ed thank you very much i'll give that to you offline appreciate that ed mills of raymond james good stuff there all right that strike Thanks. by the way a big big deal all right still ahead broken borders but maybe not in the way you might think we're launching a special series on america's big problem with legal immigration and how much it is costing companies and the economy. You don't want to miss it. Next. All right, welcome back. Today we begin a three-part special series titled Broken Legal Immigration in America. The goal is to take an in-depth look at how the antiquated process of bringing skilled labor into the country drives both the worker shortage and inflation. These issues could mean lower growth in the future if we do not fix the problem. Senior economics reporter Steve Leisman has the story. For most Americans, the immigration debate focuses on the illegal side, how to secure the border from the millions of undocumented immigrants who enter the U.S. every year and how they should be treated once they arrive. But America also has a massive legal immigration problem, one with far-reaching consequences for the economy. Experts say the antiquated system is broken, playing a big part in the nation's shortage of educated workers, especially in the vital medical and technology sectors. The broken system helps push up inflation and, experts say, plays a role in making illegal immigration worse. We're talking about worrying about recessions. We're talking about inflation. I think we're going to have a bigger catastrophe if we don't get more workers into our society, and we do that by immigration. 
A recent note from Goldman Sachs points to a falloff in immigration and says the biggest gap between job openings and available workers in post-war history is one of the key reasons that inflation is soaring. An increase in foreign-born workers could help contain the rise in wages and prices. The consequences go further. In rural communities, the lack of foreign health care workers has driven up wait times and plays a role in hospital closures and even health outcomes. For the country, the crisis may be causing America to lose the contest for the best and the brightest around the world, a contest that could mean losing its technological edge. Immigration attorney Bo Cooper says among his clients, he's seen skilled immigrants leave. That's a loss to our economy. Um, the, the legal immigration system is meant to serve the U.S. national interest by allowing us to import um, intellectual talent to fill our, our, our skill needs. So how bad is the legal immigration system? This year, 48,000 employers asked to bring in 484,000 skilled workers from abroad under just one visa program. That's the H-1B program for skilled employees. But they were granted just 85,000 approvals, or only one out of about every six applications. Normally, it's one out of every two or three. Our immigration system is designed for an era in American history that does not exist anymore. Um, a lot of the programs that were designed uh, were created back in the 90s. Our immigration system desperately needs to be updated to meet the needs of our nation today. That's especially true in the wake of the pandemic, which saw an increase in retirees and others leaving the workforce. The result of the system? A shortfall of as many as 1.6 million legal immigrant workers in the nation. There are 10.7 million job openings and only about 6 million unemployed. So about a third of that gap, experts say, is the lack of foreign workers. While foreign-born are only 12% of the population, they are roughly 40 to 50% of the STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, labor force. And so they contribute massively to this part of the economy. Staying at this level will definitely jeopardize that engine of growth for the U.S. In the next installment, we're going to go in depth and look at how the lack of foreign workers actually creates a life or death situation in rural and poor communities because of the lack of health care workers and how the broken system causes the U.S. to lose out to other nations in the competition for the best and the brightest around the world, Brian. They wanted 484. They got 85. What the hell happened? Well, what it, it all backed up. That was the one thing during the pandemic. Okay. Look, this began under the Trump administration before the pandemic. They made a conscious effort to reduce legal immigration. Pandemic happened. They closed it down entirely. Biden administration was slow to bring it back. You know why? Guess what? Irony, my friend. They didn't have the workers in the embassies to process the visas. They still don't have the workers. And if they kept going at the current rate for a long time, it's going to be years till they get rid of the backlog out there for foreign workers in the U.S. So this, well, I, they don't they don't <laughs> have the workers because the immigration issue caused the problem. Why well, they can't get more immigration. OK, uh, how long? Could this backlog go it, on? It, it, estimates are it would take years to solve this backlog, 1.6 million workers. Right now, Brian, if you were an employer and you had identified a candidate in India, China, anywhere that you wanted to bring in for a job right now, you'd be lucky to bring them in by October of next year. So what, what's usually a four or five month wait is now a 17 month wait is my understanding. And, and it goes to... It goes to the hospitals, like you said. I mean, if you go it's to somebody, especially there's so many amazing nurses and doctors that are from the Philippines and from India, and they come over here and they, you know, and they, they, they keep us alive. I mean, you, this you really is wanna, literally a life or death 
issue. You really want to tear your hair out on this issue? Which I got we'll not, talk not about much tomorrow. left, my no, man. I got none, in part because we're working on this story, which was way worse than I thought it was going to be oh. when I started. There are several hundred thousand medical workers here right now in the country that can't work as medical workers because of licensing and training yeah. issues at the state and the federal level. It's like you, you take an Uber and you talk to the driver. I always talk. I annoy them sometimes. I talk too much. And you find out that they were a, they're an MD in right. whatever nation and they, they were from. And, and they're driving as, and they're trying to get certified. And we're right. like, wait a minute, we have a right. health care shortage, a and, crisis. And, and, and Brian, I just want to get back, get to an issue that some people complain about that just drives down wages. This does not drive down wages, especially on the skilled sex. Drives up wages. Well, it drives up wages. You think about some of these closures of hospitals in places where they can't get workers. Think about the people who lose their job because those hospitals close and the doctors come in. They're the ones making the highest wage. They're not competing with anybody. There's an open job for that person that is not being taken by an American. As several people have told us, there are multiple ways to ensure that U.S. that U.S. workers are not undercut by the and, and, and for our audience and, and these are snotty things to say I know because you know if you have a higher income and you you have people that do your lawn and whatever talk to any business out there that does that kind of work they're losing all their people to cash only businesses oh, interesting and so their costs are they're like I want to do it right right but every cost is going up meantime the cash guy who's probably not insured and is you know take putting his people's lives at risk he can do it cheaper. It's, it's, it's a big issue. It's an important story. Um, what a part, can you give us a preview part? So tomorrow three? we're looking in depth at the problem on both the technology and the medical fields, the, this life or death situation. On, on the third day, which comes on Thursday, we're going to be talking about solutions to the problem. They're, how, they're never going to get to an overall solution, but there's low-hanging fruit that Washington ought to be looking at to solve this pro- at least solve part of the problem. Uh, I'm sure part of that will be like, hey, we need $500 million more million in our budget. That'll fix everything. Steve Leisman, <laughs> thank you very much. Sure. Happy Thanksgiving. It's too, still too early for snark. All right, on deck. More on oil and its potentially wild next couple of weeks. We're going to lay out all the stuff you need to know and why one technician says, despite it all, there is still room to run for many energy stocks. Stick around. All right, welcome back. Let's talk oil in China because the growing protests over COVID lockdowns are playing a little bit of havoc in the oil market. Prices were down earlier today. They're rising now on concern that OPEC's probably just going to end up cutting supplies at its meeting on Sunday. But what exactly is China's role in the global oil market? Well, they consume about eh, 15.5 million barrels per day. These numbers are not exactly exact. You just don't know. That's about 15% of total, total global demand, he said. Of those, about two-thirds, nine and a half million or so, are imported. Nine and a half million barrels per day. Much of that is coming from places like Russia. Now, with the lockdowns, China's demand has gone down. Imports are down about 5% this year from pre-pandemic levels. And while that may not sound like a lot in the global oil markets, it is. In fact, the International Energy Agency says that if, big if, China ever fully reopens, It could swing global oil demand by about 2 million barrels per day. The IEA sees a potential high of 101.8 million barrels of oil per day used. And that is if China's economy gets going full blast again. If not, demand could stay flat or even drop. In fact, OPEC's latest monthly report shows a projected drop in demand from China. And by the way, OPEC meets again on Sunday and one wonders... Could this push them to cut production targets once again? Eurasia Group suggesting as much today, but uh, I might suggest the same. 
All right, despite all this downward pressure on oil prices lately, energy stocks are still outperforming the market this year. It is by far the only positive S&P sector as a whole, and it is up more than 60%. Your next guess is the momentum behind the sector will likely continue. Let's bring in Ari Wald. He is the head of technical analysis at Oppenheimer. Ari, what's been fascinating to watch, and for the first time in a long time, the oil stocks appear to have decoupled in a positive way from the price of oil itself. Oh, that's 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 definitely the case. Uh, it's it's the fact that they've shown as much strength as they have, despite this significant run up in the U.S. dollar that we've seen this year and the subsequent uh, slowdown in the commodity rise like we saw in the first half. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an established momentum idea. It, it was a sector that was leadership into the summertime lows. It was leadership into the Q3 lows, and it's maintained its leadership uh, through the upturn in the equity cycle in recent weeks. And I think that's an important uh, point, too. Simply, a rising tide lifts all boats. It, it appears that the market cycle, while it hasn't broken out yet, is positioned to do so as the S&P comes into its 200-day average. It's doing so with broadening internal breadth. And I think a, a rising market here should just provide a, an additional lift uh, for the energy sector. Any part of the energy sector that looks better than other parts? We lump them in, but they're different. Yeah, uh, you know, broadly speaking, it's the EMP side that where we're really seeing a structural shift take place in the charts. These are the stocks that broke above their levels, uh, peak levels from 2014, 2018, and, and 2020 as well. So just as a pair trade, as we see bifurcation emerge, you, you, I think you sell the service names on strength, you buy EMP on weakness. And one pocket of that at a very sub-industry level are, are, is the strength that we're seeing in oil refiners, where relative to the sector – it's a group that's uh, taking on a leadership role yet again. I think two points about that group. One, just breaking above levels from 2018. And then if you were to plot that sub-industry relative to the sector versus a leading energy sector, just starting to turn higher and reclaim what we see as structural outperformance. A name like Marathon Petroleum really stands out as the stock gets above its summertime high as well. Yeah, looking at some of your, uh, your charts here, a stock we don't talk about much, and I love the ticker is H. Sinclair, and they've got a dinosaur. If you know, they're, they're mostly Midwestern-based chain. They've got a green dinosaur as their logo, and so their ticker is Dino, I guess alluding to the fact that ultimately oil is kind of just dinosaur juice at the very most fundamental <laughs> level. It's also a chart that just looks really solid. Yeah, it's, it's the broadness of it, right? So it's ticker Dino, it's Phillips 66, it's Valero, uh, and it is Marathon Petroleum. It's all four stocks within that oil refining sub-industry. And, and that's just telling right there when the strength in that group isn't just being driven by one or two stocks. When it's across the board, the charts are telling a story right there, and we're paying attention. So uh, a lot of those names uh, have either already broken above their summertime highs or, or we think are positioned to do so. Uh, and so for those reasons, uh, we do see a okay. you know a high conviction breakout at play. So kind of sell the Halliburtons, the Schlumbergers, or the SLBs of the world and buy the producers. That's the macro thesis? Yeah. Based on the charts, the service name's a lot more formidable resistance overhead. So anytime the group starts to turn lower, you run the risk that that long-term downtrend uh, is picking back up. Barry Wald, Oppenheimer, good stuff. You have a good one. See you soon. All right, well, we Thank mentioned you. OPEC on Sunday. Yeah, it's a Sunday meeting. Thanks, OPEC. Well, there is a lot going on with oil in the next week or so. Okay, so not only do we have these China concerns, but here's a calendar of what is coming up. Okay, on December 1st, a couple of days from now, 
The SPR sale, the latest one, 15 million barrels between the 1st and the 15th of the month, that starts up. That's certainly contributing to some of the lower prices. December 4th is that OPEC meeting in Vienna, Austria. Russia is expected to be there. And on December 5th, the Monday, the full oil sanctions from the European Union are expected to kick in. Now, we mentioned, look at that graphic. If you're on the radio, there's one that says TBD price cap. You know why? Because there's also talk of a price cap, but they're fighting over the price. So we don't know if we're going to get one, and if so, what that price will be. So the SPR sale, OPEC plus meets. Monday is the full oil sanctions, maybe, and then the price cap. We're going to be headed over to that OPEC meeting over the weekend. We're going to have live coverage of that, the impending sanctions, all next week. Talk about whether or not the U.S. can almost single-handedly save Europe next year with no Russian gas. Call it a Marshall Plan for Energy. We'll talk about Russia's ghost fleet. It's going to be a big week all next week. All right. Speaking of oil, let's talk automobiles. and Maybe car buyers rejoicing a bit because the market may finally be getting on a road back to normal. All right, we're at session lows in the overall market. The Dow is down 400 points right now. The Nasdaq down 1% as well. Tough day, to the, tough start to the week. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back. I want to get one more thing before we go, and that is auto sales. It looks like finally they're starting to normalize for both dealers and buyers. Phil Bo joining us now. Look at some of the trends. Phil. And the trends are encouraging if you are in the market for a new or used vehicle. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going back to where things were pre-pandemic, but the trends in terms of average transaction price, the average incentive, the amount of inventory, all of that is improving. We'll get the final numbers later on this week. RBC Capital, though, estimating that the incentive will go up slightly. Average transaction price will dip down under $46,000. Inventories in that 33- to 34-day range, still well below where it was pre-pandemic. November sales rate is going to be coming in somewhere between 14.4 and 14.6 million. In a normal market, this time of year, it would probably be closer to 16 and a half to 17 million. By the way, for all of 2022, the sales pace is currently at 13.7 million. Take a look at the auto dealer stocks, and we're showing you Auto Nation and Group One, and we're comparing that with CarMax and Carvana. Why? To show you that there has definitely been a split when it comes to those who deal primarily with used vehicles, those compared, compared to those who are in the new vehicle market. And one last chart for you, Brian. Take a look at Tesla. Why are we showing you Tesla? Big week for Tesla investors as they are hoping that when the company delivers its first Tesla semi-truck on Thursday night, that at that presentation, they will hear from Elon Musk. We haven't heard much from him when it comes to Tesla really in the last several months. So we'll see if that had changes on Thursday night, Brian. Supply chain's getting better? Uh, yes, but it's still not robust. It's, it's fragile. Not as fragile as six months ago, but nobody in the industry is completely comfortable with where it's at. Yeah, I mean, cars, basically just computers with, with wheels and an engine at this point. So you need those, you need those microchips. Philbo, some good news there maybe from car buyers. Thank you very much. That does it for us. Power Lunch is next. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. 
Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 